1: Let's face it, this is a national security threat. If Americans come to conclude that the result of an election, any election, is not true, that is, it is not really based on how Americans voted, then that undercuts our democracy. It cuts undercuts our whole notion that we live in a country of majority rule and that we all get together, we vote, and that's what we decide on, it, that person, and we get behind them. So this really matters seeing Russia and other countries interfering in our elections. The intelligence community has been very clear about it. Whether Trump recognizes it or not or acknowledges it or not, they did interfere in 2016.
0: They, in fact, acquitted him, and now he has free reign. I'm going to beat this man like a drum.
1: Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So, Windsor man... Note the name, come on, Windsor Man. He's one of the few died in the well preppies to leave the Republican Party once it was lost to Trump. And he's been writing about the catastrophe, but with more dryness than most columnists can muster. I know I can't muster it, for USA Today, where he's on the Board of Contributors and the Week where he's a columnist. He's also the author of The Quotable Hitchens, a fantastic selection of the uh, wit and wisdom, can I say wit and wisdom, of Christopher Hitchens, who himself never fit into a political cubicle, just as really Windsor doesn't. He's one of those guys who looks and sounds like he should be the vice president of an oil company, but fundamentally he's as radical and hyper-literate as anyone you'll ever meet. He's your grandfather's Rockefeller Republican He might even be rock-ribbed, whatever that means. His heroes are William Buckley and Irving Kristol, and he's one of those people who has never, ever stopped reading. When he's old, we will definitely say they don't make them like Windsor Man anymore, and he's my guest. Windsor, welcome to Trumpcast. Thanks for having me. So I thought I was the first person to identify you as an epigrammatist, like a kind of Emerson or Oscar Wilde or Christopher Hitchens. Keep going. I like this. <laughs> but it turns out that Max Bood and others have figured that out, too. Your style is so well suited to Twitter.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, Twitter is good because you can say short, pithy things and sound profound, but without having to back it up. So... Twitter is good for that.
1: (laughs) I sometimes see my Twitter persona as like taking sniper fire for me because I'm just like cowering and stuttery. But on Twitter, I'm just so commanding.
0: But you're you're good Uh, at threads, too, which I don't do.
1: Yeah. So, okay, we've had threadologists many times on the show, like Ben Wittes. But you use Twitter for quips. You use it for what it was originally used for. And I think Malcolm Gladwell says it still should be used for things like on February 11th, you tweeted breaking like all caps, breaking, like breaking news, breaking the rule of law. Right. I mean, that's that's good stuff.
0: That is totally evergreen in this administration <laughs> too. I mean I could tweet that any day.
1: Yeah. But your pinned tweet, which is also evergreen from last October, general rule, the worst Trump treats you, the better history will treat you.
0: I stand by that, too. I've been trying to think of counterexamples, and I can't think of any. The closest I could think of was when Trump was mean to Kim Jong-un in 2017. I thought, okay, this may disprove it. But then he became best buds with Kim Jong-un.
1: Yeah. He was just trying to do negging. In his courtship, before they started writing letters, don't you think he was trying to do that pickup artist thing?
0: Yeah, I think I tweeted something like way back in the day, like you could understand that relationship is sort of, I did this once in high school where I pretended to be mad at a girl oh, so that yeah. she would kind of notice me and it worked. And then I kept on doing it. I kept on doing it like, oh, and then it just got stale. And she was like, oh, you're bluffing. <laughs> So, but it worked so well the first time.
1: The first time you said you're going to bring fire and fury. Yeah,
0: yeah. The first time I said I was going to unleash fire and fury on her house.
1: Right. I mean, that would get me the fire and fury approach.
0: Yeah, yeah. She liked the alliteration, I think, too.
1: (laughs) Okay. So, what drew you to epigrams? Because I have a hypothesis that it's part of your politics.
0: Really? Huh.
1: Yeah, that you were drawn, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but you, that you were drawn, I don't know if this is back when you were in college, but to Christopher Hitchens, the kind of contrarian, humorist, master of these kind of brief, terse insights, that you were maybe drawn to him because those were the days when conservatives were the party of the head. Yeah. And they weren't bleeding heart liberals, the opposite. So they were the smart ones.
0: Yeah, I first started keeping quotations my junior year in high school my Mm. like probably most high schools you have a senior page in the yearbook and you can put quotes on there yeah i actually took that seriously most of my friends were just like whatever
1: i just put like she's buying a stairway to heaven you didn't
0: yeah or what's the other one that ferris bueller's day off like you know life (laughs) goes by fast if you don't stop and miss it you know whatever that that was so cliche so i didn't want to do that but i did have some stupid i had a mr t quote on there too but then i had a notebook where i'd write down quotations So that's when I really got into it. I liked Thoreau and Emerson and Conrad.
1: You were drawn to these literary figures, these philosophers. But how did that drive... A young man like you, your whole life ahead of you, to identifying with the conservative movement or at least with the neocons, is that fair?
0: Yeah, I liked the original neoconservatives, like Irving Crystal, Bill Kristol's father. Yeah. I liked him a lot. I still read him sometimes. And Daniel Bell, Nat mm-hmm. Glazer. Back then it did seem like conservatives were the more rational, hard-headed intellectual group, I guess.
1: And funnier, right? Yeah,
0: because they didn't take themselves seriously. Now they take themselves so seriously. And And they're all feelings. Yeah. That kind of alienated me, I guess, from whatever. I mean, I don't even know if you call them conservatives or what, because I don't even know what that means anymore. Because I don't, what are they, conserving? It just doesn't make (laughs) sense. Also, I think conservatism died in 91 when the Soviet Union collapsed. Because conservatism was, as Frank Meyer, who was an early contributor to National Review, said, it was was fusionism. It was anti-communism and libertarianism. And once one of the planks comes off, then all you have is libertarianism. And by then, the country had grown accustomed to big government. So there wasn't really anything to fight against. I mean, George H. W. Bush, he passed uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act, some environmental regulations and Reagan's second term, I mean, he was giving a lot of aid to farmers and there wasn't the same urgency of a fight against big government as there was in the late 70s and early 80s. Also, crime was another thing, too. That was big in the 70s
1: Hmm.
0: and they had pretty much fixed it. So there wasn't really anything to rail against, except I think 9-11 gave conservatism an artificial spike. So it made people think it was alive again. Mm -hmm. But once the war in Iraq started going poorly, then it kind of exposed conservatism as just hollow.
1: I want to talk first about the Soviet Union because you and I both admire those New York intellectuals, including Irving Kristol and Daniel Bell, who started as socialists at City College. Or uh, This is very potted history of the New York intellectuals, but started at City College and then had their heads turned by the failures of the Soviet Union and then moved to what seemed like the right and also ensconced themselves in in many cases at Harvard. Mm -hmm. But there's a particular relation to Russia or the Soviet Union that seems to characterize some of these shifts. So if people like you in the crystal tradition are certainly not socialists, but are moving away from the Republican Party, it seems that the goal is to be on the other side of Russia. You see what I mean? You have Trump, right?
0: Yeah, I haven't thought about that. That's interesting.
1: So if Trump cozies up to Russia, if Bernie Sanders cozies up to some extent to Russia, then that's not where you want to be.
0: Yeah, I think it's mostly coincidence, though. Okay. One thing that always fascinated me about the original neoconservatives was the disillusionment, the fact that a lot of them went from believing in one thing really strongly and it goes back to Arthur Kersler too he wrote or uh, edited a book uh, The God That Failed sort of the Whitaker Chambers um, yeah th- that those kind of people so that always interested me people who believed something strongly and then kind of done on them that it was not true in contrast with Lillian Hellman I guess who defended Stalin
1: oh yeah the people who stuck with it to the end mm-hmm. since I brought up Bernie Sanders there was a moment in my youth when Al Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian dissident fresh off the gulag, moved to Cavendish, Vermont, fairly near my house. Did he really? Okay. Yes. And the residents of Cavendish were so protective of him because he was such a hero and had suffered so much, was a beautiful writer, that they had no shirts, no shoes, no service and no directions to the Solzhenitsyns. Hmm. So you couldn't go out there and visit him, although a fair number of conservatives of at least of Russia hawks did visit him. And one person who very much did not visit him was Bernie Sanders, even though it's his Mm. home state.
0: Also, President Ford.
1: Yes. And that did not go unnoticed by people who thought that American socialists, some American socialists who had started as Stalinists, not Trotskyites, had gone too far. One of the things that interests me is your own interest in mind changing. I mean, the idols you selected and Hitchens, by the way, is this too. Really, one thing they have in common is not just their neocons or not neocons or never Trumpers, but that they've changed their minds and they're willing to change their minds.
0: Yeah, I really admire people who are able to see reality and adapt to it. I I haven't really (laughs) thought about this until, you know, until Trump. But like the never Trumpers, I don't really use that term. But I mean, they're called that. So I'll I'll call them that. But people who have stuck by, they say the same things about Trump that they said in 2015 and 2016. I really have so much antipathy for the people who changed their, like the Lindsey Grahams who said the right thing in 2015 and 16 and then just completely have reversed themselves. But I think seeing what happened with Trump and seeing how people rationalized their way into supporting him, mm-hmm. it, it lends insight into conservatism more broadly, I think, and that if these people don't have principles on Trump, do they have any principles at all? And going back to conservatism, I don't think it really meant anything anyway. That's why it was so easy for these people to abandon their principles because they (laughs) didn't really have any Mm because conservatism ceased to mean anything. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com.
1: It's my little
0: escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com
1: No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What do you think of Mitt Romney, who presumably you supported for president? What do you think of his sort of last stand in referring to, of all things, God in his decision-making about whether the president should be removed from office. Did that seem like a principled stand that you could identify with? Because Hitchens was a famous atheist.
0: Yeah. Oh, he was an anti-theist.
1: Anti-theist, yeah. right? A certain amount of contempt for that kind of posturing.
0: Yeah. I don't think it's posturing, but it just didn't resonate with me. I mean, I, you don't need to invoke God to surmise that Trump was guilty. To me, that was just unnecessary. Yeah. But I admired his stance.
1: It does seem like you need, because again, your pinned tweet, the worse Trump treats you, the better history will treat you. I mean, moral decision-making, especially around the impeachment, but at Helsinki when Trump announced for the presidency, those moments are very interesting, what the reference point for doing the right thing is. And this epigram says, you know, the better history will treat you. And Schiff certainly said... You know, think about your role. With you know what you'll tell your grandchildren, or or another references might be to your individual conscience, or to your or to your capacity to apprehend reality or to your place in history. And Romney was very, maybe falsely modest, but he does seem indifferent to his place as a footnote, as he said, in history, and is much more interested in this vertical relation to moral truths, his relation to God. I mean, how do you make moral decisions in the absence of, and I mean a moral decision like to oppose Trump, in the absence of some discourse of theism?
0: like most people i think you just do what you think is right it's so easy for me too i mean just being a writer it's easy to make moral decisions like a couple of my liberal friends say oh you're so brave and it's i'm not even remotely brave um just i just write you know an article and you know send it out and that's that's nothing
1: yeah, that writers are much more I mean, able to change their minds than someone playing on the Astros is going to be unlikely to want them to be stripped of their title in the in, you know at the World Series. And operatives like Rick Wilson, who've devoted their lives to getting Republican candidates elected, and to, he has that team spirit.
0: Yeah, I think that, that's tougher. Yeah, but still, I mean, when the right thing is so obvious, I mean, I think it'd be harder to do the wrong thing, it just because it would just my conscience would just drive me insane.
1: That's right. So that's sort of the, that'll lead to too much insomnia.
0: Yeah. Also, I I think I am vain enough to think, uh, I mean, not to think that pe- like historians will pay attention to what I say, but I I do want to be on the right side of history. And I think most people should want to. So I think that's what drove Romney more than anything was that and telling his children and grandchildren this. I mean, it would just be so hard to justify acquitting Trump and explaining that to your grandchildren. Oh, I just can't imagine that. And he tried not to think of the, the immediate consequences, which would be dire in terms of, you know, being he even said he was like, I'll be vehemently denounced. I, I don't know how he said, but he said the words vehemently denounced.
1: Yes, he did. It was a it was a really beautiful speech, I thought, elegantly phrased, written. It was heartfelt.
0: I mean, you could tell because he was having some trouble saying it.
1: I want to talk to you about specific people whose whose minds I feel like you're more familiar with than I am and one of them is Lindsey Graham. What is putting so much torque on his behavior. I think you and I agree that we don't like to run to Occam's razor defying explanations about blackmail. But do you just think he's trying to see which side his bread is buttered on? Is it is it he's like a Manchester United fan? He's just in for a penny and for a pound with his team? Or do you think he's really enthralled to Trump? I mean, it, guess a little bit because you're from the South. You understand the Republican Party better than I do. Talk me through this.
0: It's hard to know for sure because I don't know him. I've never met him, but um, yeah. I think he just. Well, he said in an interview with the New York Times once that he embraced Trump because he, uh, to try to be relevant. Yes, and I think the Kavanaugh hearings really were significant because that's when he erupted and was screaming and saying how he's a, a single white male and he won't shut up, and <laughs> that then he became a really big deal. And conservative circles, and then he started going on Hannity, and and he started attracting big crowds. And I think he loves the love, so he became yeah. popular. And so some people say, "Oh, he's just doing this to get reelected." You don't have to go all out like this to get reelected in South Carolina. He could tone it down a bit and and still win his his election. So I think it's he is single. He doesn't have a you know, a spouse, so he kind of has to. Hmm. He has to get affection somewhere. And I think it's the Senate. I mean, that uh, from all accounts, I mean, the Senate is his life. And I think that's just how he's doing it. But yeah, I really don't think that he all of a sudden thinks that Trump is this all knowing, all wise, sent from God type being or something. I mean, some people think that, but I he's been in politics too long to buy that.
1: When he speaks in defense of Trump, he strangely, and I don't want to get too psychoanalytic, about this, but he, he, he refers many times to, quote, other people who hate Trump. He must use that expression so hmm, much. Yeah. And he'll say, you're doing all this because you hate Trump. And I wonder how that seems unfair to him. Or I think he thinks that that hate, whatever Trump's vices, that that hate is unwarranted. You know, remember some Republicans accused or some journalists, I think, asked Pelosi if she hated Trump. Yeah, and yeah. She, that was she James ex- Rosen. James Rosen. And she exploded at that because if the anti-Trump crowd is going to succeed, it seems that they need to really hold the center of some kind of equanimity. Well, and if they're just acting on hate. Yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but it's it's a way of accusing the other side of irrationality.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's you right. hate
0: them. So therefore, you're not acting rationally. You just hate them and you can't. That's why you're impeaching them. Not because of any evidence. You just hate them so much. You're just doing this.
1: Yeah. And there are some never Trumpers playing that role. I mean, there's most notably probably Rick Wilson, who couldn't be sort of more opposite from you in tone you know he calls him like a near-legged scullionly ort or whatever I mean, even he you know. has
0: a way with words is it's unparalleled
1: right where you have these kind of cool-headed epigrams he tends to kind of rant in a way that gets the heart beating oh well, yeah but he he's also he likes the game oh yeah yeah
0: he doesn't I mean, feel he, like yeah. he's losing it no no i don't think so but he he likes he's pugnacious so yeah um he he likes the fight I, I want it to end.
1: You do. Yeah, but also you've kind of, and this is very Hitchens of you, written on the possibility that we might miss Trump. I mean, he's a very, he's, yeah. he's really, I mean, you know, he's brought a lot of us together to kind of, if you like ideas, hash out certain ideas.
0: Well, that, that's one thing is I, I try to be aware of the perverse incentives that Trump gives us um, because he yeah. fun as much as you might, despise him. He has kind of fun and interesting to write about and all the dynamics that are going on. It's just interesting. And for some people, it's, he's been great for people professionally, uh, his critics.
1: It's a job creation program that he didn't it, intend.
0: It, it really, yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah. But I, you have to be mindful of that if you're going to be intellectually honest, I think. I, I think people will miss him whenever, I don't know when he'll leave. But I think people will miss him because they've done scientific studies on this where the, in terms of the dopamine, just the outrage, people love outrage. Um, yeah. They, maybe not consciously, but it is fun. I felt it too when some bad news story hits and everyone's on Twitter. It's, it's you know, it's the two minutes hate on there and it, it's, it's exhilarating. And that's what Hitchens said about 9-11, the 9-11 attacks. He felt a feeling of exhilaration. I know exactly what he meant now. Because yeah. Trump, I mean, Trump represents pretty much everything I despise in politics, and I feel the same sense of exhilaration, you know, in a negative sense. Not that I'm a bullion or anything, but just in terms of oh, I, we have to tame this.
1: And the kind of if you ever wondered what you would do if there were a totalitarian regime or that if if American values were threatened, well, now's the time that you better be doing it. And I think a lot of people who thought who, you know, held on to thought experiments of how they might have acted in Solzhenitsyn's place or how they might have acted in the neoconservatives place about the Soviet Union or whether they might have embraced or rejected Stalinism. Now's our chance, let alone had we been in Europe in the 30s. You probably saw that Godwin himself, who you know and is the 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 author of Godwin's Law, has repealed Godwin's Law in when in making comparisons between Trump and Hitler. I try to sort of lightly entertain it, sort of keep in mind that it's that that is always possibility and we don't know exactly what it looks like if we're going to plunge in the dark ages or we're going to plunge into some you know new kind of stalinism or or worse a kind of third reich that that's that's always a possibility for a civilization what do you think you really avoid hysteria, which I commend.
0: I, I'm interested in the Hannah Arendt. I mean, I went back and reread. I actually reread it all the time. Her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. Yes, and it is crazy how um, you read a page or two and you're like, "Oh my gosh, that just happened yesterday." Yeah, and, and it's it's the origins of to- totalitarianism that interests me, I guess, because I mean, we're not. It's not 1984 now, but there are just weird things that happen in terms of uh, she talked about the infallibility of the leader mm. that's happening now um, with the do you remember the Kansas City tweet?
1: Yes. When we, he yeah. got
0: the state wrong and he said Kansas City and it's the great state of Kansas and he deleted it but his followers Matt Schlapp was even defending it after Trump deleted the tweet was saying oh he was right and yeah it's uh, and so that is just creepy to me.
1: Yeah. But, that, so that's
0: not in terms of the strong arm of government, but it's the same kind of mindset where you have to defend even uh, everything he does. So, I mean, it's dear leader is always right, especially when he's wrong.
1: Th- yeah, that is pretty and,
0: much the the motto of the Republican Party.
1: And then he might redraw the map to make it to somehow make it right as he's as he's done in the past. Yeah,
0: there's some other line too where um, if he gets the. Uh, employment figures wrong or something then they'll go back they'll go and change the figures to make it right with what um the leader said
1: wow right yeah i mean i'm i'm glad that you hold on to that as a as a it's not impossible it's just never impossible um but you know but there's like not being a hypochondriac but still you know taking care of your health i think it's
0: i think it's okay to just note that this has happened before and people didn't see it coming. I mean, I as as David Fromm says, there are a lot of stops on the train before you get to Hitler station. We're not yeah. there, we're not even close to there. But as Gary Kasparov has said too, in 1933, even Hitler wasn't Hitler. Yeah. Trump doesn't have an ideology. So he's he's not aiming to go anywhere. He's a kleptocrat. He just wants to make money and protect himself from the legal consequences of his actions. He just wants to stay out of prison and get rich. Yeah. So he's not he's not like trying to exterminate millions of people or anything like that. But I'm more alarmed by what his supporters do and say on his behalf.
1: Well, I am too. I noticed that Bill Crystal said something like, we've got to do X, Y, Z to, you know, get the right nominee for the Democrats. And just the we, you know, was yeah. striking. Yeah. And some of you have changed parties entirely. And some of you have said you vote sometimes for Democrats. And others like Joe Walsh, who's a huge fan of yours, have really thrown in so far with Democrats. They say they'll vote for Bernie, they'll vote for anyone as long as it, you know, as long as it means voting against and defeating trump that their whole lives are about defeating trump what about you when it comes to the democrats i mean just must be strange even thinking what's a progressive and versus what's a liberal or a you know full-on socialist it's not strange at all oh
0: just because it's like i mean we all recognize a common threat i I don't i I really i don't care whose side i'm on just uh, you know i just want to get rid of this guy Um, But I I do worry though with Bernie Sanders that I, I think I agree with Rick Wilson. I think Trump would just annihilate him. And that's what concerns me. I mean, there's a reason why all Republicans, It's there's a reason why they like Bernie Sanders so much, even though they try to disguise it somewhat. I mean, Hugh Hewitt said that he's going to vote for Bernie Sanders in the Virginia primary. I mean, yeah. they wouldn't do this if they were really worried about him.
1: So you think you're with the idea that they are going for him because they think he's the easiest to defeat? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I know.
0: He... I know. Because I remember um, when I, I worked on the Bush campaign in 2004. And I remember National Review came out with a cover story. The cover was of Howard Dean, and the, the cover said, please nominate this man. And I felt that wholeheartedly. I was like, yes, please nominate Howard Dean, because even though, <laughs> even though Bush beat Kerry, Howard Dean would have been so much easier. And, yeah. uh, and it, it, was, it was a national security election, and Howard Dean would have just been, it would have been a cakewalk. They tried to label Democrats as socialists, and here comes one who actually admits it Yeah. I mean, gosh, you can't ask for anything better than that. And he's old and just had a heart attack. It neutralizes so many issues and it neutralizes Russia, his issues with Russia. So it it neutralizes all of Trump's vulnerabilities, I think. So it's that's exactly who they want. I would vote for him, though, because I just I'm so scared of a second Trump term.
1: It sort of occurred to me that Sanders, while he would he would be like a step down, like methadone or something from heroin that, you know, from Trump that you would have sort of this weaning period from excessive emotionalism, from from revolutionary populism, from a kind of know-nothingism and disinterest or or absence of interest in in feasibility of his programs. I mean, that all sounds like very Trumpian to me and ideology recklessness, but I think way less net damage to the republic. That's my idea that if we're in this fighting mode and man, do Democrats seem like, I just saw something just now about never Trumpers, like you get out of the Democratic Party. I mean, what? I hate to say the Democrats are in disarray, but everyone is just cortisol poisoned.
0: Yeah, it's so it's so similar to the, the Republican primary. Yeah. With you have just so many candidates and Bernie Sanders is the Trump in the sense that I mean, he's just different.
1: As for who could beat Trump. So you know in in many ways the sanders crowd have told us that they they uniquely might not vote for the no- nominee i mean they their enemy yeah, is yeah. in many cases the the dnc so that's a kind of extortion or something
0: yeah, that's why, that's why the Trump people love Bernie Sanders. Their common enemy is the is the Democratic Party.
1: Oh, nicely said. But leaving out who could beat him, and I think Sanders people think he uniquely could beat Trump. And I don't actually think the problem with Sanders is that he couldn't beat Trump. I don't think he would make a very good president is the problem, but I know it's weird to think about those things in this climate. Who do you think would make the best president of the Democratic nominees. Uh,
0: Yeah, this is something I don't put enough thought into. Um, Yeah. I I definitely think Bernie Sanders would be the worst. um, Yeah. Because he just runs on slogans, I think. And um, I just, he just doesn't seem like a serious person to me. And so many Democrats just despise him. Yeah. He's not even a Democrat. But in terms of who would be the best president, I mean, I like Klobuchar, probably her, I guess. Uh, I really don't know. I mean, I like Mayor Pete, but he has so little experience. So yeah. I can't say him, but um, I don't know who do you think? I mean Warren, I guess.
1: I think Warren. I mean I I like someone with Senate experience and with you know, it, it, but also Klobuchar who've worked with people in the Senate. I mean I really just I let I mean and and Sanders I I agree with Hillary Clinton that she like McCain is just he's she's he's not a good colleague in the Senate.
0: Yeah. And that matters. I mean, when you have to deal with Congress, yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, yes, I do like the collegiality. I like the sophistication, the sort of intellect of, of Elizabeth Warren. You know, I like her, I like her story. I like her, she's encountered, she's sort of dealt with some subjects, including Trump and impeachment with a kind of gusto. And she seems to be able to grasp the Mueller report, you know, things like that, that are kind of big and sprawling and consequential, but, you know, are not actually something that ordinary voters can metabolize easily.
0: Yeah, I think I think the the problem with her is that she so many people on the right just absolutely despise her for whatever reason, uh, Mm -hmm. like kind of Hillary part two, that Mm -hmm. I think she would have a hard time not and it wouldn't even be her fault. She would have such a hard time dealing with Republicans. I mean, they would just I, I don't know if it's. Misogyny. I don't know if it's because she's, you know, pretty far to the left. I, I really don't know why, but that would be an issue. And I, I, I just want someone who's the most, the the furthest thing from divisive, as possible. And Bernie would be the the most. And Warren would be pretty divisive too. I want someone who can just kind of. I want a, a Gerald Ford type person who can
1: yeah, like sort of patch things over yeah. or like cool us so off. Just, just
0: not be crazy and terrible. Just that's all you have to do. <laughs>
1: I like that. All right. Well, we'll leave it there um, on another epigram. Windsor is a columnist at USA Today and The Week. He is also the author of The Quotable Hitchens. Thanks so much for being here, Windsor. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. What did you think? Break it to us gently on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. Don't know why, but I'm feeling snowflakey today. And are you a Slate Plus member yet? Join up. You get all the episodes of TrumpCast and all our podcasts ad-free plus secret discounts, invitations, and basically a way to rig the election so your candidate will win. $35 for the first year. It's at Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. That's Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty.